Of all the Puritans, John Owen is perhaps one of the best well-known. The author of classic works like Communion with a Triune God and On the Mortification of Sin, he is beloved for his insights into human nature, Calvinism, and true Christian spirituality. However, Owen also wrote extensively about the Holy Spirit, offering modern readers valuable insights into spiritual gifts, the illumination of Scripture, and how the Spirit indwells believers. In our interview today, I'm talking with Andrew Balich, who currently serves as Associate Pastor of Preaching and Ministries at Westwood Alliance Church in Ontario, Ohio. He previously taught church history at several colleges and seminaries and is the editor of Volume 7 and 8 in the complete works of John Owen from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. It's good to be here. So let's just start big for those who aren't familiar with him. Who was John Owen? When did he live roughly? Where did he live? And what's the significance of his life and his work for us today? John Owen was uh, a Puritan. Uh, He was born in 1616 uh, in England. Uh, He died in 1683. And so his life uh, spanned some of the most significant years when we think of the Puritan Think of the Puritan movement. Mm. When we think about Puritanism, we can talk about it in terms of uh, a political movement, which we'll probably get into. John Owen was very involved in Puritanism as a political movement and the English Civil War and the Commonwealth period and, and the rest. We can talk about Puritanism as a ecclesiastical movement. Often we think of it as the Puritans were those who uh, thought that the Church of England needed to go further with Mm -hmm. its Reformation and its turn to Protestantism. Further away from the Roman Catholic Church. That's right. Yeah, they would see that what happened in the 1550s and 1560s uh, under Queen Elizabeth really as the the Church of England being reformed in its doctrine, but not yet reformed in its practice and Mm -hmm. its worship. And so the Puritans were those who said, no, we want to be reformed in our doctrine, yes, but we want that to have all of its implications on our worship Mm. when it comes to what liturgy is, what the calendar is, what worship looks like, feels like, uh, and the rest. They wanted it all to be brought under the the authority of Scripture. And so we think of it as a political movement. We think of it as an ecclesiastical movement. Puritanism, uh, the way that, that I often think about it, and I think one of the more helpful ways to think about it is a like a spiritual revival type movement. Mm. And so uh, when you start to think about who's Church of England and who's a separatist or who's part of this official political movement and who's not, you start to get difficult definitions of who's in, who's out of Puritanism. But if yeah. you define it as uh, these are sincere people who were concerned about theology and practice both, Uh, that lived during this period in England from the 1550s up through uh, most of the 17th century. I think it's more of a helpful definition. And and, uh, John Owen very comfortably fits into that that definition, as well as the definitions of ecclesiastical and and political Puritanism as well. But John Owen was... uh, made his name for himself in London in the the 1630s and 1640s. This was a time of of social upheaval as there was a civil war. Um, Charles basically uh, was trying to push, trying to push his version of Anglicanism, of prayer book worship on, on all of Great Britain. 
and uh, he called Parliament, and Parliament declared civil war. They had Puritan sympathies. And so it was in this context of civil war and Parliament being in control in London that John Owen makes a name for himself. He didn't actually participate directly in the Westminster Assembly, uh, like some of his peers and contemporaries did, but he did regularly preach to Parliament. Later on in the 1650s, uh, he was very close to Oliver Cromwell, who was uh, the Lord Protector during the Commonwealth period, uh, actually serving as his chaplain. Uh, the, and the Commonwealth period is a period when they didn't, when England didn't have a king. Is that that's correct? right. Yeah, the culmination of the Civil War was the execution of Charles the um, First. We which think was our a big deal. we think we live in boisterous times today, but nothing compared to this time in uh, in history. Not no, not in English speaking history. Yeah, the the Civil War was all kinds of, of upheaval. First of all, you just it was unthinkable that somebody would commit regicide, kill a king. Mm. You know, you would fight against him, maybe exile him, but to to take his head was extremely radical. There were censorship was non-existent during this time. So you have all kinds of ideas exploding. You have all kinds of radicalism happening. Mm. Um, And this is where John Owen is becoming into prominence. And when we get into talking about his understanding of the Holy Spirit, this is what's informing it, kind of the lid coming off Mm. uh, in English society and theological ideas. But John Owen was a prominent person during this time of upheaval, serving Oliver Cromwell, uh, serving in the administration at Oxford. And then really when the fall of the Commonwealth period happens, uh, the restoration, we call it, when basically Parliament is uh, has been disbanded by Oliver Cromwell. He dies. His son Richard doesn't have the same command of the military, the same kind of charisma, if you will, as his dad, and the whole thing starts to kind of unravel. Mm. And the fall of the Cromwells and the fall of this political climax in Puritanism was really the fall of John Owen from some of the, Mm. at least the highest parts of society. Because he's eventually exiled to some extent, right? And he's prevented from preaching and in... Well, he, because of his positions in the Cromwellian government, because of his uh, name recognition and and how big of a deal he was, he was honestly sheltered from a lot of the more Mm. extreme persecution that some of his other Puritan contemporaries went under. But he continued to preach, he continued to Mm. pastor, but he was very much removed from the public eye because at the Restoration, the Church of England becomes uh, increasingly the only kind of show in town. Mm. And so those who are Uh, meeting in other churches like Owen is and pastoring, they're doing that kind of under the radar. Yeah, Um, yeah. But he spends the last decades of his life doing what I think the Puritans are known best for, which is uh, pastoral ministry and piety and writing works of spirituality and devotional things and doing theology. Yeah. So you say that's what the Puritans are best known for, but my sense is that the general public, even the general Christian public, maybe doesn't have that sense for the Puritans. And I think you clearly, you've spent a lot of time with the Puritans. You you did your dissertation on William Perkins, and you also have edited this these couple volumes on John Owen. What would you say are some of the common misconceptions that fellow Christians, people in your church, people that you know, uh, have about the Puritans when you tell them, yeah, I'm studying the Puritans or I'm working on this book by a Puritan? 
People have different views of the Puritans. Their reputation has been rehabbed uh, in yeah. the last few few years, which has been a good time to be working on them. But a lot of times people see the Puritans as killjoys, people <laughs> who didn't enjoy the things, the good gifts that God has given. One of my favorite quotes about the Puritans is a guy named Lord Macaulay who said the Puritans dislike bear baiting, not because it caused joy to the spectators or because it caused joy to the spectators, not because it caused pain to the bear. Uh, <laughs> I butchered that. But um, the point is they just didn't want you to have fun. Yeah, that's what right. they're kind of known for. Yep. And so life that be kind hard of, and yeah, miserable. there's that kind of stigma. Um, and is that is there any truth to that? I don't think so. You know, yeah. the Puritans were they were largely Sabbatarians, so they did have uh, strict views on what you were allowed and not, not allowed to do on the Christian Sabbath on Sunday. It was supposed to be the market day of the soul they talked about. It was supposed to be devoted to the Lord. They were serious about their faith mm. and their Christianity, but they enjoyed life. Yeah. You know, they, they were married. They had children. They had social gatherings together. They enjoyed beer. They enjoyed recreation, leisure. You know, they write about these things and they just saw them that they needed to be in balance. Mm. You know, the yeah. Lord needs to be first in your life. And then all of these good gifts of the Lord fall in place. Yeah. And so I don't think, uh, there's much to the accusation that is is accurate. Yeah. So, so you've edited the very first two volumes that Crossway is releasing in this new 40-volume complete works of John Owen's set, coming out progressively over the next few years. And these first two volumes are volumes that contain works that he wrote on the Holy Spirit. And you argue in your introduction to these that Owen's contribution to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was purposefully and self-consciously new. Unpack that a little bit for us. In what ways was Owen trying to do something new when it came to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I think he was trying to give a all-encompassing vision of the Holy Spirit based on the biblical data that's available to him as well as systematizing the insights of the 16th century reformers and the reform tradition up to this point. And so think about some of the other Puritans. Maybe Thomas Goodwin is known for his magisterial work on Christology. John Owen is, in my mind, really the preeminent theologian of the, among the Puritans on pneumatology, just because of the sheer size of the treatment. There's the volumes that, that we're talking about here today, and then there's uh, his primary treatise on the Holy Spirit as these five smaller treatises that make up volume seven and mm. volume eight. And so he's his self-consciously doing something new is that just the size and the scope and mm. the ambition of what he's trying to do. He's trying to give an exhaustive treatment of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, both his person and his work. So now I'd love to turn now to some topics related to the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if you could kind of summarize what Owen would say about some of these. And, and some of them are particularly relevant to his time and maybe emphases that he had. Let's start with indwelling. That's one of these core ideas about the Holy Spirit. We believe that he indwells us as Christians. What, how would Owen have explained what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was? I think he views the indwelling of the Spirit as what's referred to in Ephesians as the seal of the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is 
the down payment of the glorification that is to come. Uh, it's what is the what we talk about with the Spirit taking residence with us as Christian individuals, as the body being the temple, but also in the midst of the church being uh, the body of Christ. And so the, the indwelling of the Spirit is really the Spirit coming not to just to dwell in the believer, but to apply all of the benefits that Christ has purchased for his people in the atonement. Mm. What about spiritual gifts? That's another one that that topic, obviously, in our, in our circles today, at different points, have been controversial. We've, we've debated what are the spiritual gifts and how do they apply to us as Christians today? How did Owen see the spiritual gifts? Owen viewed the spiritual gifts in in it's interesting. He he wants to make the connection. He makes a distinction first between ordinary and extraordinary spiritual gifts. Hmm. And when he talks about extraordinary spiritual gifts, it's what we would often talk about as the uh, miraculous gifts, right? The manifestations of the spirit, whether it's tongues or prophecy and these sorts of things, healing. Um, and then he also wants to tie ordinary and extraordinary spiritual gifts to certain offices. So there's, there is the ordinary offices that are a part of the church that are a part of the church throughout the ages, like elder or pastor or overseer. He would see those as the same, the same office and deacon, mm-hmm. right? There's ordinary gifts that God equips church leaders in those offices. And then there are the, uh, the extraordinary offices that are things like prophet, and evangelist and apostle. And these we see being talked about and being in operation in the New Testament, especially the book of Acts. And so as those extraordinary offices pass from the scene, those extraordinary spiritual gifts that are tied to those offices also pass from the scene. Now, what's interesting is you would automatically say, well, that makes John Owen a cessationist, right? <laughs> right. We're trying and, to put him in our modern categories. And he is a cessationist in the sense that there is nobody walking around that has the authority or the, the gift of healings like Peter does and says, right, I have no silver or gold to give you, but what I have I give to you, get up and walk, yeah. right, walking into uh, the temple. So there's no, there's no spiritual gifts operating like that because there is no there is no extraordinary office. Only the ordinary offices are in operation. Mm. But it's not quite so simple because Owen will make interesting statements about things, revelation or healing or tongues. And he'll say, it's not that the Holy Spirit can't or doesn't use that. He actually makes the comment that there's probably places around the world that the Holy Spirit does work that way, but he doesn't view it as a gift. So it's not that the Holy Spirit can't work miraculously in the Interesting. world. Even through other Christians, humans. Through humans, through other Christians, right? Yeah. Yes, but not, uh, he wouldn't call that a gift. Yeah, which He would which, call that the operation of the Spirit because the Spirit works in mysterious ways, the way that the yeah. Spirit wants. So he doesn't want to say the Holy Spirit can't work miraculously today, but when the Holy Spirit works, it's his prerogative. It's not a gift a in gift, the sense which that would apply that has. You would kind of, someone could continue to use that at will uh, as, as more of a, a normal part of, of, of their ministry. Of their ministry. Right. Yeah. He, he doesn't want us to expect as local churches for there to be miraculous manifestations of the Spirit. Mm. He says once the extraordinary offices cease, 
then those extraordinary manifestation, manifestations cease with any type of regularity. Yeah. But he wants to leave the room open for the Holy Spirit to work miraculously. So that probably fits pretty comfortably in today's cessationist camp, even with that little asterisk that God can do what he wants to do. Sure. What about prayer? As I was reading some of your introduction, you, you made the point that Owen was pretty down on liturgical prayer, something that seems like in our in the milieu today of Reformed evangelicalism is sort of maybe experiencing a bit of a renaissance. People are coming to appreciate this, the liturgical elements of worship services and, and the idea of praying prayers that have been written and, and passed down for centuries. Owen was pretty skeptical of the value of that for the Christian. Why so? Well, he talks about prayers of human composure right, and these forms of not just uh, forms of ancient prayers that you might appropriate from another period of church history or from for us from the Reformation period itself. But he's just talking about rote prayers in advance. Yeah, right? it, that, that's what he's not sees. even just like liturgical prayers that the church has been using for years. It's like even writing a prayer ahead of the service and then delivering that prayer he would be dubious about. Right. He's uncomfortable with that or un, unsatisfied with that because he sees it as uh, a stifling of the Spirit's work. Mm. Right? And extemporaneous prayer is when someone is communicating sincerely there to the Lord and can be led by the Spirit in, in certain ways. And so what he's reacting against, though, this is important to understand contextually, uh, he's reacting against the Church of England in all of its liturgy that goes way beyond just a prayer that's written in advance. Mm -hmm. He's reacting against the Church of England because he sees the carryover of Roman Catholic elements into its worship. And Owen would be in the, basically promulgate what we talk, call today the, the, the regulative principle. Uh, the regulative principle of worship saying that only uh, those things that we see in Scripture as positively proposed for worship or apostolic precedent, or precedent, those are the things that can be included in worship. Scripture regulates Scripture, right. or regulates uh, worship, as opposed to the normative principle, which would be in the Anglican tradition or in the Lutheran tradition, that as long as Scripture doesn't expressly forbid something, then it can be included in worship. And so written prayers fall into this category yeah. of not expressly forbidden. So a lot of people in traditions are comfortable with it, but in a reformed tradition that is, has a robust application of the regulative principle, which mm. Owen would be, he's uncomfortable with that because we don't see New Testament precedent for this in worship. And so part of it is it doesn't fit his idea of how we're supposed to conduct worship services according to scripture. And two, he sees it as a, a stifling thing as less than what prayer could be if we are doing it extemporaneously uh, being led by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So why was it that he viewed that though as stifling? Why couldn't the Holy Spirit be at work ahead of time, say, in or out of time in working to direct someone in a prayer? What was it about the worship service context itself where he thought that was where the Spirit would want to work most fully? He definitely talks about he talks about layers, and so it's not a matter of or a spectrum, if you will. So it's not a matter that the Holy Spirit can't or wouldn't or doesn't work through a written prayer. It's just that there is better and best, or mm. right there's another level of that where the Holy Spirit is going to work uh, in the most uninhibited way. 
uh, through an extemporaneous prayer, through mm-hmm. the person, whether it's the urgings of the Spirit or the um, the sensitivity of the pastor to what's going on as he has been in worship with his people that morning through song and through seeing faces and fellowship. There is a special um, way that the Spirit works uh, that it's mysterious, that is uh, stifled in a way when you come in thinking that you already know what you're going to say, going to say. Yeah, so was this suspicion related to liturgical prayer shared by other Puritans in his day and even after him, or is this kind of a, a unique thing that he was really, really uh, stuck on? No, it's not a unique thing. There are other Puritans that share this concern. Mm. And his treatise on the Holy Spirit in prayer is talking about rote prayers. It's also talking about something that he calls mental prayer and trying to conjure up images. And this basically, it's prayer is supposed to be a communication with the Lord. And when you try to add various ways to help that, you end up hindering it, mm. I guess. It's supposed to be yeah. a conversation. It's supposed to be to the Lord and on behalf of the people, on behalf of the person. And speaking, right, prayer is both. It's also speaking the truth to the people, too, yeah. right? It's both ways. And so it's, again, I would say it's the spectrum of what the Holy Spirit will use and ideally what the Spirit uses and what is most unencumbered. Mm. And it's not an exclusive Thing to Owen. Yeah. One of the other things that, that, that Owen and the Puritans are doing, especially, so these treatises uh, that we look at in volume seven and eight are written, written at the end of Owen's career, pretty much the last decade of his life. Some of them are pu- published after his death. Uh, but they're at a point now, just like the Puritans found themselves for a while earlier in the 1600s before they rose to power, they, they find themselves in a precarious situation because they're censured if they push against the official Church of England, right? Because those who are proponents of the Church of England are in power. So this happened earlier in the Puritan experience, and it's happening for Owen later on in his life, where what they'll do is they'll attack Roman Catholicism, but everybody knows what they're really attacking are those elements of Roman (laughs) Catholicism in the Church of England. Right. And so he's focusing, just like other Puritans, on liturgical prayer, on rote prayer, usually in the context of an attack of Roman Catholicism because he sees that as a problem in the Church of England. He's not trying to reform the Church of Rome. Right. He, he's concerned for his own church in his own backyard, but he can't quite say it as clearly as that. Right. He has to have a, a, another foil, mm. but it wasn't lost on anyone who, who the Puritans <laughs> really were, were talking about. But it gave you plausible deniability. Yeah, so it's so speak. interesting. Uh, maybe uh, one other area, doctrinal area, that he hits on is this idea of the illumination of Scripture, how we approach the Bible, how we read the Bible, and how the Spirit works with us on that. How would you summarize his understanding of the Spirit's role in illumination? He writes a lot on this. Both of his, both treatises actually in volume seven, the reason of faith and causes, ways, and means of understanding the mind of God are together his twin treatises on, on illumination. Uh, the reason of faith, he wants to think of it in, in talking about the spirits where when we talk about understanding scripture and illumination, think about the, the what we believe, he'll get to content of it in 
and causes ways and means of understanding the mind of God. But there's also the, the why we believe scripture and the how we believe. And he spends a lot of time in the reason of faith saying that scripture is self-authenticating. Hmm. The reason why we believe scripture to be true is because scripture is true basically. And the, and, and the Spirit impresses that upon us. The how, right, is when the work of the Spirit's mm. illumination. So what he doesn't want to do, he doesn't want to move, he doesn't want to move away from Scripture's authentic, self-authentication and Scripture being true because it's God's Word and it's true, right? So that's established. That's the why we believe. But the how we believe is the Holy Spirit's impressing that upon us, mm. right? And so the Holy Spirit's work of illumination is partially for us to accept Scripture as true. Um, and then secondly, the Spirit plays a role in giving us understanding in the truth as well. And so those of us who want John Owen to give you a, um, a kind of dissertation on hermeneutical method and how to go about starting with a passage of Scripture and, and you know, A, B, C, D, he doesn't do that. Mm. Because it is a work of the Spirit, he spends the majority of his time after he's grounded Scripture's self-authentication, he's grounded and talked about the Holy Spirit giving us that impression so that we can accept it as true. Then he talks a lot about prayer, preparing the heart, making sure that you are uh, not living in sin and you are you know, living faithfully and with clear conscience before the Lord. All of this sort of thing is part of allowing the Holy Spirit to illumine the scripture for mm. us. He does get to, towards the end of his treatise, towards reading in community and the understanding of original languages and some of uh, church history and biblical geography and some of these things, but it's very much at the end. It's after this Holy Spirit's work of giving us insight uh. into the truth. So when it comes to talking about this and how he, how he understood the Spirit's role in helping us understand the truth, through scripture. He also is responding though and pushing back against other, I think he would call them sects, sectarian groups that were out there that had different views that he found to be problematic. My favorite one that you you mentioned in the book is the Muggletonians, which I just love that name for obvious reasons. But another group was the Quakers. He, he had major problems with the Quakers. Summarize kind of what it was about what they were saying that he found problematic. I really see, so in his, in his historical context, and he's clear about this, right? So I'm not putting these categories uh, into his understanding. He wants, to, he wants the regular Christian to be able to understand the Scripture. He doesn't want them to have to appeal to the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit like the Quakers do, right? Mm. Kind of like new special like revelation. experience in, right. Right, and, right and, now, yeah. And so there's, this, there's like the mystical type of, of experience that goes too far, in the special revelation and the quakings of the Quakers mm. and the rest. So he's trying to be uh, avoid that pitfall. At the same time, there is the sectarians known as the Socinians who don't see any role for the Spirit and only view the Bible through a rational lens. Mm. And so there is, right, you don't, you don't need any help from the Spirit. You just need to apply your reason to the text of Scripture, and therefore you get the proper interpretation. And so he doesn't want to avoid an over-spiritualization of the process. He doesn't want to, or he wants to avoid over-rationalization of the process, and at the same time avoid uh, what the Roman Catholics do, which is appeal to tradition as the authority or the Roman curia for interpretation. Mm. So he's trying to create space for the regular Christian to understand Scripture through the help of the Holy Spirit 
while avoiding all of those yeah. things in his context that he sees as problematic. Yeah, it's so fascinating as you describe it that way. Uh, he's got you know this kind of overemphasis on the spirit and a subjective approach to scripture on the one hand. The other hand would be this overly rationalistic approach, and then finally uh, an over dependence on tradition and history that that feels so familiar to us. We wrestle with those same dynamics in our own conversations and our own Christian denominations and how we should approach the Bible. It's amazing to me how often so much of what Owen uh, was wrestling with and, and dealing with are the same kinds of things that we struggle with today. Have you found that to be the case if you, as you've dug into his works more deeply? Absolutely. He's trying to articulate in his doctrine of illumination what he spends two treatises on, right? We, we want, as Christians, we want to say that, yes, the Holy Spirit has a role in our accepting and our understanding of Scripture as Christians. But at the same time, we don't want to downplay the rationalization. We, we intuitively know that there has to be something different between the secular New Testament scholar that doesn't believe any of Orthodox Christianity but yet knows Greek better than, than most of us, mm-hmm. right, and understands the content of Scripture, what, what is it about the Holy Spirit's help to Christians that actually does give them an edge, so to speak? You know, is it all a matter of just the will that he allows us to apply these things? Or is there actual work of the Spirit and giving insight into the truth. Owen is trying to articulate that Mm. in a way that I think we intuitively know that there's got to be something there. When it comes to his discussions on prayer, certainly uh, the discussion that we just had, what's better, what's proper in worship, what's proper in our own devotional lives is important, right? When we talk about the Holy Spirit as the comforter uh, and the doctrine of assurance, I mean, what Christian has not dealt with doubting their salvation at some period in in their life. And the spiritual gifts discussion is uh, alive and well today uh, as well. And so he's wrestling with similar questions in a very different context, which I think can often make him helpful because he's going about it with a different kind of view and understanding of the world, a different angle than, than maybe we would come at those same, those same sorts of questions. And that's such an interesting point because I think sometimes our default assumption can be because he's coming from a different context, because there's all these historical things happening that we don't understand, we have to maybe spend some time studying to understand and get to know better, that that can make him less helpful for us today because... You have to translate everything he's saying through that historical context lens. But I hear you saying that actually it can help us maybe understand these doctrines a little bit better as we hear someone articulate them from a different angle with different priorities perhaps than we would have coming to the text. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think right we're, most people are not going to read all 40 volumes of Owen and not come away with thinking he's got it wrong in certain places, mm. right? And he's got blind spots and... And we could talk about some of those, but but we have blind spots too. You know, I think in general, that's part of the beauty of historical theology and studying church history is it allows us to confront somebody from a very different context, place, and experience that can help point those things out and can give us insight. New is not always better. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so going back to people who have reflected very deeply on God's word and sincerely on God's word, I think can be helpful for us, helpful for us today. Yeah. That's a nice segue into maybe my last couple questions. Although Owen is 
often lauded in kind of our reform circles that we live in as one of the greatest Puritan writers. Uh, he's still not particularly well known outside of, certainly outside of Christian circles, but even within Christian circles, I would say it seems like most lay people would probably be like, maybe I've heard that term, but he's certainly not a Martin Luther or even a John Calvin for many Christians. And a part of that is probably due to just certain assumptions that we might make about him. And I wonder if you could just respond to a couple of those. The first being maybe that he's just too hard to understand. If you've dug, done any reading of Owen, you know, his sentences can be complex and he can kind of go on for a while and use terminology. How would you respond to the Christian who says, I, I can't understand what he's saying? Well, I think you can understand what he's saying if you give him the time that it takes. I mean, one of the things, he, he's not going to read like a novel. <laughs> you know, he's not going to read like a popular level work on theology or, or church ministry. He's not going to be as colorful as like a Martin Luther. Uh, he doesn't stand as historically significant as some of those some of those early reformers. So all, all of that being said, I think he can be if you're willing to put in the time and attention and the work to understand him. I think it's difficult for us for the reasons you just said. Right? Our attention spans aren't what they were in the 17th century. Mm. Um, Puritan sermons often went several hours. You wouldn't get away with several that. Several hours. Uh, you wouldn't get away with that in modern <laughs> churches, right? I don't think so. Um, and so one of the things that I think, though, ha- is will really make Owen more accessible is this Crossway series as editors have gone through and tried to explain the big words in footnotes. When we do run into a historical figure that's obscure, a short uh, articulation of who, who that person is and why it's important, putting in subheadings that break up the text and splitting up the long paragraphs and uh, some of the sentences, right, to try to make it more accessible without changing in any way what Owen said. Because he is, you have to, uh, in, in a way, you have to outline Owen sometimes as you read him to know where he is in your argument. Um, and we're, we've tried to do that in these volumes mm. uh, through helps to the reader. And so there are aids, but he, he is worth it, and you can understand him if you want to uh, devote the time and attention and effort and uh, right, anything that is very valuable uh, mm. in our lives takes those sorts of things. Mm. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time today to introduce us to John Owen a little bit and help us to understand a little bit of what he has to offer us on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, well, thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed it. That was Andrew Ballich on John Owen's insights into the Holy Spirit. For more, be sure to check out Volume 7 of the Complete Works of John Owen, which he edited for Crossway. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.